two things that I would encourage people to think about are one in, I mean, a company is an allocation of resources. If you have product market fit, uh, probably the, the scarcest resource for the highest impact resource is the quality of people and spend a lot of time on that. The second is really know what are you really good at and what are you not? Um, and be real about it. And, and, and that's great, but, uh, uh, you can, you can count on other people. So I try to do that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, a show where we will learn from today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, I sit down with a very strong entrepreneur, Eric Gleiman, co-founder and CEO of Ramp, a finance automation platform providing an all-in-one banking solution for businesses. Founded less than three years ago, Ramp has scaled incredibly fast and is now the fastest growing corporate card in the U.S., having raised almost half a billion dollars from investors like Founders Fund, Co2, Stripe, Goldman, and more. Eric is a second-time fintech entrepreneur, which made this conversation even more interesting, and we discussed Ram's internal processes and secret sauce that has allowed them to scale extremely fast while maintaining product quality and client satisfaction, leadership lessons, why startup founders with product market fit should prioritize hiring the highest quality of people and building internal processes, strength of the Capital One School, lessons learned from his time at Capital One, and why most fintechs want to hire Capital One alums, and a window into Eric's vision of the future of business banking, where most tasks will be automated and companies will spend less money and time managing their banks. I hope you enjoy this amazing conversation with Eric Gleiman. All right, Eric, how are you today? Welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, do, I'm doing well. It's good to see you. Likewise, man. Excited to chat. Uh, you know, obviously, we're going to talk about Ramp. But before we get there, let's, uh, let's hear a bit about your story, particularly your entrepreneurial journey, because you did have Paribus before Ramps, and I'm sure you learned a ton then. Maybe, maybe talk about uh, your journey a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, where do I start? So I, I guess I was born and raised in Las Vegas, lived there for, for 18 years, went to college out east, I, uh, economics and Mandarin, lived in China for a couple of years and, and, and happy to talk about that. I probably like many folks listening to, to this podcast, I, I started my career in, in, in finance, did it, found, found it interesting. I, I worked in restructuring and bankruptcy and a lot of what we, we learned there was what has to be true for for businesses to stay in business. And a lot of the skills that we were focused on was, could you find value that people had missed or overlooked, particularly if, if a company is, is coming towards the end? There's this, this overarching question of, is there some part of it that's still good and should continue? If you change things around, could you make that better? And that led into Paribus, um, which was happily not a company. It's the end of its life. It sold. It was a good ending. But a lot of the question that company was about was, could you help people get more out of things they'd already bought? It, it launched in May of 2015, and it was a very simple premise. The idea was if you were as a consumer bought, let's say, something online from a, a store, let's say you bought a TV at Best Buy, and a few days later, Best Buy put the TV you bought on sale for less. They had a policy that says you can get the difference in price back if you ask, or if you're 
Amazon purchase shows up later than what they promised, you can get an extra month of Prime. And we built an email app that automated that. Basically, you could sign up, link your email, we then uh, pair us to the rest. We track what you bought, the prices, the guarantees, the receipts. And if you were eligible for something, we filed a claim and, and you got the difference and we charged a cut. And super easy, super simple. Um, and it just took a life of its own. We, we, we launched the thing. With, within a year, we had almost a, a million customers. <laughs> Uh, within a year's period, there was a lot of, of ups and downs and everything, but we, we got a pretty large offer from Capital One to buy the company. And I, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, Ramp is obviously a very different company, a very different premise, but I think a lot of those, the same core ideas of could you turn um, data into savings for, for customers and, and help them get more out of things they're already doing, how they're spending their time, how they're spending their money are still very, very present. This This notion of how does it tie to credit card? We were bought by, by Capital One um, and we ended up in the credit card division. Um, and so we got to learn how the industry worked, what was great about it, um, what were the issues, where were the huge misalignments. Um, it wasn't obvious inter- uh, externally, but, but internally you could really feel it. And so uh, I think in a lot of ways, it's some parts of the business are very different, but other parts, I think philosophically, in some ways, Ramp has been um, a lot of a continuation from, from that time. So um, hopefully it's what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you you're acquired and you ended up at Capital One because you know a lot of successful folks in fintech, both on the investing side, you know, talking about QED, uh, and also on the operating side, have come out of, of Capital One. I think uh, I interviewed Karibu Hunik last year, one of the yeah. co-founders of QED, and he calls it the Capital One diaspora, if I'm not mistaken. What did you experience in, in the culture at Capital One? Because they, they do seem to be doing something right. They are an amazing company, right? Like people for, forget this, but, you know, Capital One's closest. Com- so, so Capital One is a founder led company. You know, there, there are two founders, Rich Fairbank, who is, you know, still the, the CEO and Nigel Morris, who, who left and started QED. But it's a founder led company and, and most of their truly competitors had founders that died like a hundred years ago. It's sort of an anomaly that Capital One, you know, exists and, and got to the scale that it, that it did. And there was a, an, an incredible amount of goodness there. And I, I was very lucky. My, someone I reported to is kind of Joe Pomitz, who's an incredible leader. And I think early in his career, he was the chief of staff to, to Nigel. And I felt very lucky I had to get a, get a lot of time with, you know, executives there truly understood, understand what helped them stand apart. And I think that if you really trace and, and learn the history of the company, it was wildly innovative. When they got started um, offering credit cards to consumers, it was a very different landscape and people forget. But at the time, if you were rich, you could get a credit card. If you weren't, sorry, you really couldn't. And the basic, one of the first of many insights they had is surely there must be some slope there must be some way to make a trade there like maybe if there's if if someone isn't the highest tier of of credit quality you know perhaps you can you can have a way to adjust for that maybe it's a higher you know interest could be a trade-off maybe you set different limits and you test in and you can reveal a risk curve to later how you would go and acquire companies at one point i believe they were the largest customer of the u.s postal service until amazon I think took that over. And so there was a lot of just amazing skill sets where, you know, that company I think is really driven by this business analyst skill set of how do you really go and use an information based strategy, test and learn, understand various hypotheses, iterate on that and use data to make decisions. 
And I think a lot of, you know, today, many fintechs are all trying to hire people who were at Capital One, were, are there now. It's probably the most common thread if you look at risk and underwriting teams. And even our head of risk, uh, Sri Srinivasan started his career. Um, we actually, um, he actually reported to Joe too. Um, uh, we figured that out later, but I think it's an amazing skill set that most fintechs are trying to hire behind. And so I, I think that what, what Capital One really is better that, than most people in the world at and figured out is how do you use data in iterative testing with regards to risk? And, and that is where I think they were excellent. And it's, um, look, I, I don't think I really could have started ramp without spending time there. I think that we operate in an area with certainly a, an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude less risk than you might have in consumer credit. But that basic thinking and how you set a framework for, for consistent learning and iteration, it meant everything um, to me to be able to be there. So it, it's an amazing company. So switching gears to uh, RAM, right? So you went into a, a segment that is arguably competitive, right? But at the same time, you've been able to go, as you, you were mentioning offline a little while ago, quote unquote irrelevant to now, you know, being, being noticed by all the big guys, right? But what, first of all, why specifically this segment? And what do you think has been, you know, your, your secret to, to break out quickly? Yeah, I think a couple things. First, you know, when, when we came out, we, we, we started with this very, it was a crowded field and, Almost everyone knew about it. It wasn't like we have this new product called the credit card. Have you heard the news? It was like people were like, no, I have eight. Like I, I know about credit cards. And so I, I think what was really important for us as we were sort of observing the market was how could we be different from the get go? And one of the large misalignments that we felt, the more companies that we spoke to, the more finance leaders, um, even internally at, at credit card companies was this notion of, if you were a, a scaling company, you were trying to build a well-run business that was meant to last. You were trying to to knock out ir- irrelevant uses of, of, of time. Credit card company wasn't thinking about that. You were trying to spend less money. The credit card company was thinking a lot about how to get you to spend more money. And it just felt like, wow, what if there was a, a, a card and frankly software that was focused on helping companies spend less. And, and that was what we came out with. And it, it really caught the, a lot of attention of people about credit card companies trying to help you spend less. That feels really counterintuitive and almost overnight helped us go from a, you know, an, an unknown startup to these people are, are taking a really interesting and different approach. And I, I actually think the number one challenge that most startups have at a certain point is most people don't care. They, they have their, their life is busy. They have enough stresses and complexities and things they already have. Like, I think, I think Justin Kahn, who's a mentor and an investor, had said this in one of the streets is most startups' battle is, is, is against irrelevance, people not giving a shit. And so some of this is how do you stand out and have an important and different and true message early on was, was important. And that's now evolved. Ramp is in, is, is, is our focus is on finance automation. Um, we're now the fastest growing corporate card in America, but we offer an integrated expense management. So you don't need any other software to close your books. You automatically collect receipts, replace concurrent expensify. We have integrated bill payments so you can replace bill.com. We help the average company cut their expenses by 3.3% per year through, you know, savings insights, through replacement of software that you don't need, um, through running after some cash back. And we help companies close their books about five days faster each month. And so a lot of good value. And that's helped. I think that focus on 
it's, you know, next this very different, this question that we asked, which was like, how do you help companies save time and money led to very different conclusions. And I think it's led to very different go to market. And so I think what's helped us at the beginning was, was having a differentiated kind of view and, and path. And I, I think now what's helped us stand apart is there was also some thinking that went into the design of the company. You'd asked about Capital One. I think they are an exceptional company that really figured out what, if you have amazing a business analyst mindset, you take a information-based strategy, you can build an, an amazing company of a certain type. Amex, I think, was one of the best companies in the world, one of the best brands of all time. Uh, amazing marketing and partnerships. Chase, one of the other large players, had has unbelievable uh, distribution. Somehow, some way, you'll, you'll stumble into a Chase branch or a Chase service, and it leads to incredible growth. But I, I would submit none of these companies are truly engineering-driven. None are truly product-driven. And we thought that there really was room for a great engineering and product-driven culture. And so very early on, we tried to design to, to fill that space, really think through what would it mean to be that kind of a company. And I, I think it's, you know, today people see some of the output of, of that, which is ramp iterates very, very quickly. And, and that's true. But I, I think a lot of that came from what was really missing in the market and, and how can we, you know, deliver that. Um, so it's a very different under un, the DNA, but it, it came from a lot of upfront thinking about where we wanted to be. Yeah, you, you've kind of taken the words out of my mouth. I was going to exactly go to how you're a product and engineering driven business, right? And you're shipping product often. But how do you maintain this, right, within the company? And what's, what's your process, right, to, to figure out what's next and, and then launch it in, you know, relatively quick fashion? It's a great set of questions. So I'll, I'll get to the first. So, so there's some, in some ways, we lucked into this. So we, some of it's the history. At Paribus, we were building APIs where companies didn't always exactly want them there. Um, and, and so we had to be, our, our engineering culture came up in a world where you had to ship updates constantly because Amazon could change the format of a receipt or the page structure. And if you wanted to scrape and send in claims and all that, you needed to be able to change things out quickly. And so there were some parts of the company's history that lent to a culture of shipping very fast. At the same time, we were going into the financial services industry where it's just not okay if your credit card just doesn't work. That is not acceptable. Um, it's not okay if you just like pull twice as much money as you were supposed to. And so there are certain aspects where what we favored and I think had a lot of uh, history in, in shipping quickly. We also realized that getting part of the culture, um, that I think financial services do a great job by and large of incredible stability, low latency, working into really designed for both. And so early on, even in, in some of our infrastructure and, and even team designs, there are certain parts of the org that are designed explicitly for very fast iteration, moving extremely quickly and shipping with very high um, cadences and maybe would, would run out and front run and build and have, uh, you know, quick, quick iterative cycles. At some point, once you've, you've determined, you know, product market fit, this is what customers love, all that and you want to start to go and put this into production, it shifts to a different style of engineering, which is about robustness, incredible foundation, low latency, 
And I think that by stratifying who's working on what types of problems, one, there's very different styles of, of, of engineers that favor different approaches, but two, you can sort of get some of the best of both worlds, where it's fast iteration and building for robustness and completeness. And we try to do that in design of how you can think about organizing um, teams and work. The next one, you know, you'd ask this, this other question of what do we build by? You know, when, when you have a, a clarity of purpose that, that's different, you tell people what you're about. Um, and then you ask people, okay, great, we're here to save you time, money. How can we do that? People will tell you. Like, it's it, if you have businesses really aligned with, with people, they'll let you know, like, here's here's what, what actually would save me money here, what actually would save me time. And we listen a lot. And we, you know, all of our, whether it's sales calls, we, you know, we, we try to record. Um, we always ask customers, it's fine. We do that. And we sort of take notes of what was the, when things go right, what went right, when they didn't go right, what, what went wrong. You know, we do lots of interviews and as we're shipping new products, we, we have a running index of what are people actually asking for. And part of the reason we can ship so quick what people are looking for is, uh, we take notes. It's actually based on real data. And if you really open your, your ears and, and listen, it's not always the case in, in consumer, but it really is the case in, in B2B. And that's why we built full expense management re- replacement. It was the number one ask. That's why we built and went deep into bill payments. That's why we went deep into others. It, it was sort of based on a, a real live running total. And, you know, I think last is, can you build a car, not a faster horse, but that goes a little bit into process here. But um, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, no, extremely helpful. And the best companies seem to be listening very closely to, to their customers, right? How about you as a, as a leader of the company? By the way, how many people in the company today? We just crossed 200. Okay, very nice. So uh, this is your second time leading a company. Do you think your approach, your style has evolved over time? And, you know, maybe uh, share a little bit about that, that leadership approach. Yeah, 100%. So I think the first company that we started, we had, uh, here was our plan. Kareem and I, um, for Paribus, had saved up. I think between us enough to pay for, for rent and not work for, I think for, for five months, uh, four months, something like that. Moved to Brooklyn, grow out beards and just try our best. And, you know, that was, was fun, but it was, a lot of the mindset was around, you know, scarcity being extremely diligent. And there was a lot of really good things about constraints and you learned the advantage of that. But there was a, there was a certain speed that we could move at. And, you know, at some point, if you, I mean, I, I think there's reasons for the, the phrase, phrasing penny wise and pound foolish. The, the philosophy then was, unless your hands are bleeding, you know, don't make that higher yet until you know. And there's a lot of good parts of that. You learn different skill sets. You could better manage other people. And I think it's very good early in career to, to be really resource constrained and, and, and move very slowly. At some point, when you have product market fit, um, Moving past it, you're you're trying to build for scale. It's a lot of the, the, the focus of a lot of uh, companies. And I remember, you know, I was doing a sort of a, a different kind of analysis. And I was like, huh, I'm only when we started uh, ramp, I was 33 percent of the headcount. I'm 10 percent and I'm soon going to be five and I'm soon to be one today. I'm about half a percent. I'm not as useful as I used to be. I don't have as much impact in the same way. And I think at one point, I think the first blush was like, wow, that's that's in some ways could feel a little scary in other ways. It's wait, wait a minute. This is this one. This is incredible, but I need to, I should really be putting a lot of thought into who and how we hire because that can be unlock a ton of leverage um, for, for the company. 
if I'm only a, a small part of it, maybe I should be spending a lot of time thinking about hiring. And so I think I've spent a lot more time for this time around, it's been closer to a, a third, 40% of my time just on hiring and thinking through a process and meeting with candidates. And those people are really surprised the amount of time I'll spend with them. And it's because it's, I'm going to count on them <laughs> to make great decisions. And so we spend a lot of time. It's the second time one of our first 10 hires was in talent. Uh, the other eight were in engineering and the last one was me. And so we, we, we made a very different set of investment choices and in, in, in where we spent time is I think the, the first big change. And the second is I also gotten to know more of my gaps. There's certain areas where I'm really good at it. Surprisingly, I'm some people who, who know and email with me is I'm, I'm a little bit disorganized. Um, so I don't get back to people, um, probably, which I, I still feel bad about, but my, my, my sort of natural approach to things, if there's a hundred things to do, I'll, I'll, I'll probably do the, you know, that try to figure out what are the t- top 10 highest levers most important to the best of my ability and the other 90 I might drop. And so I try to find for balance of who had great spice in, in hyper organization and for different parts of the company. I think it's been really good. So I think the two things that I would encourage people to think about are one in, I mean, a company is an allocation of resources. If you have product market fit, uh, probably the the scarcest resource for the highest impact resource is the quality of people and spend a lot of time on that. The second is really know what are you really good at and what are you not um, and be real about it. And, and, and that's great. But uh, uh, you, can, you can count on other people. So I try to do that. Sounds like you uh, advocate to double down on your strengths and hire for your weaknesses. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely better articulation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and how about, um, you know, how about, so, so a lot of the evolution, successful evolution of, of CEOs is, you know, kind of adapting to this new reality. This is a new company. You need, you need new different skill sets. A lot of, a lot of people hire coaches, have mentors, you know, do you, do you find that any of that has been helpful to you? I think that. It's really hard to internalize um, what it means. Like if people are growing, you know, call it 20% per, per month, fast, right? And you do that consistently, it means that the company that you're operating is basically doubling in size on the order of every three and a half, four months. Wait another three and a half, four months, suddenly it's 4X. Another three and a half, four months, it's 8X. It means that the things that made you very talented and good may not matter. Or in fact, the things that at that scale works almost certainly won't work or will have only half of the impact that it did before. Uh, so in that context, you, you actually, it's almost schizophrenic where you, 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 you cannot, I think many jobs are about consistency, excellence, sort of improving a little bit. And this might be actually, I'm going to, I need to completely change what, what I'm doing or give up things entirely or, or, or change my job every three to four months. It's actually the founder's job is it's not just stressful, but it's it forces you to become a, a bit of a different version of yourself very frequently. And so I, I think that makes the job in some cases very interesting and exciting in other ways hard. And, and I think uh, mentally and psychologically and even from a career growth perspective, very hard in terms of things that have been helpful to me. One, um, you know, in hiring, we, we, we do try to look for people on the team who not always need it, but when possible, people who, who knows what it has felt like to go through that. 
maybe in a certain area or function of their company, that can be so helpful, not just for me, but even in the organization cascading. Great. Here's what it means to, to go through that, how we're going to do that and plan and kind of lean in uh, as you're, you're speeding up sort of knows the right motion. And so I, I think trying to build that, not just for you, but think about that for your organization. Next, I, I, I try to, I, I found a lot of, I mean, there's advisors who are sort of seen it all, run large companies is, is great and they have wisdom and that's like a real thing. You know, there's no feel until you encounter it. But some of the, the most useful advice are, are other founders, entrepreneurs, people who are two years ahead, a year ahead, maybe are subject matter experts. And so I, I don't have, at least right now, a, a, you know, a coach or therapist or, or something, which I think for pe- people who have that pursuit, I think it's great. I think it can be very useful in sorting your thoughts. But I do have a lot of people that I try to go to um, pretty regularly for, for thoughts and advice and, you know, how to kind of keep moving and internalize that. So it's it's mentally, I, I think, a, a hard job, but obviously very rewarding. But it, I do think investing in that and I, I do have as far as founders goes a relatively calm d- demeanor um, and more relaxed and I, I don't think it's because the job is relaxing it's just more I, I, I try to step back say okay like maybe I'm, I'm stressed today does that really help probably not okay why am I stressed great cool what, what's actually important and usually I find I can try to step out of it for a second and, and look at what's important to what we're trying to optimize for what we're trying to grow that that really does help. And so I, I try to just mentally go through that process um, with, with some, some consistency. Now, Eric, when you, when you think of the road ahead, you know, let's talk a bit about what, what comes to mind. Um, we of course have heard a lot about what's going on on the consumer side for banking. And I love um, everything that's being done to, for, to automate it, right. To have a, self-driving wallet, as Andy Ratcliffe calls it. You think on, on the commercial side, there's going to be something similar. And, and you've got, you, I guess you're, you're giving us hints of it with the products that you're launching, right? But uh, what, what's next? I, I know that you cannot share everything, but uh, you know, I would love to hear where do you see this industry going. Yeah. I, I, by the way, I love that analogy. And I think this notion of a self-driving Self-driving cars, self-driving wallet. Like I, I think it's very clever. I do. And um, look, in, in, in a we we serve businesses, and in the context of, of businesses successfully growing, they're taking on more and more and more. That's harder to stay on top of. There's more processes. There's more manual work. There's more things for a company to think about. And the more you can take things off company's plate, I, I think that just inherently creates value. So we're very excited about that. So I think first and foremost, like that, you know, when, when we think about our mission and, and our purpose, I, look, I, I think every company on the, the, the planet has a, a purpose. Some are trying to revolutionize healthcare. Some are trying to put people into space, make man multiplanetary. There's incredible companies doing incredible things. Some have more, you know, giant others have more humble purposes, but our, our mission is to save customers their more valuable resources. It's their, their team's time and their shareholders capital so they can build a better version of their, their business. And I, I think that when you think about the two building blocks of, of time and money, I think the self-drivingness um, very obviously lends to this, this first one. And I, I think even looking at some of our, our historical roadmap, I, I think a lot of it's re- revealed by this framework. We, 
we launched a, a credit card that helped people spend less. But on launch day, we had um, expense management built in that became more robust to the point people can fully replace um, an expensify or a concur, which still isn't true for any of our direct credit card, uh, corporate card competitors. But why did we do that? It's because we could automatically uh, collect uh, receipts invoice. We could text people the second that that, that that transaction occurred. We could automatically label and use integrations that we have with accounting software to automate more and more of that, that process. We saw there was a lot of issues around bill payments, so we went deep into that. And so I think that, you know, when you think about, um, okay, what, what causes wasted time, what causes wasted money, as you take and tie more, more of those together, you automate more of those things away. I think that you can get into self-driving. And so I think that there's going to be ways to entirely, you know, get rid of the expense report that we're, we're working on that should move the industry ahead. We think there's a lot of price discrimination. You know, when I think about what a great self-driving car can do, it can help you not just drive in traffic, but maybe it can help you avoid traffic altogether. Go where you can drive your car faster by using information that you can't have just inside your car. And we, we see across thousands of businesses incredibly different rates that people are getting charged and and how can you help people take better, faster routes, more efficient use of money. So we think we have a long way to go, but I think the world, whether it's us or others, I think the world will be a better place if customers as financial partners and software partners are thinking not uh, just about how do they charge you more higher prices for a SaaS offering or get you to use their product more, but instead saying, how can I genuinely help someone spend less money and time, I, I think better products will exist. And, um, you know, we're excited to build against that. Fascinating stuff. Well, Eric, before we let you go, I want to go back to something you mentioned at the very, very beginning. And, you know, you tell us how the hell did you find yourself representing your alma mater, Harvard, at China's CCTV 10th Biennial International varsity debate. <laughs> you performed as an angry radio show host. Yeah, <laughs> um, that was one of the weirder trips that I ever ever took. So I, I think it's a bit of a pastime in Asia to put foreigners on TV and have them speak Mandarin. And so um, I, I had a great time. I, I loved it, but it felt very game game show esque. But um, look, I. We're at half. I grew up in Las Vegas, and I, I left the country. I, I think once to go to Canada, uh, Toronto, for a couple of days, and that was it. Like I didn't. I, I was not from a worldly background. I showed up on, on campus at, at Harvard, and I, I just had this. To give you the short story, this feeling of like I really just wanted to do something I, I could never do at, at home. And I, someone I, I lived near really encouraged me to go and, and, and try studying Mandarin. I did it. And it kick my ass. It was really hard. Um, it was the hardest class by far. So I, I, I kind of like this and I want to learn. And I ended up going out for a summer, fell in love with the country. It was just changing so much. It was a very different period than it was now. I mean, that was right after the Olympics and the World Fair was right around the corner. It was an incredibly optimistic place. It was growing, you know, 10% per year, almost. It, it just felt very welcome. So I just went back every summer. And I direct enrolled in a Peking University. I only learned accounting in, in Mandarin. I, I never learned it in English. And that debate was uh, my senior year. So it was after I had spent probably on the order of a year, year and a half um, collectively uh, between summers and semesters out there. And uh, there was an invitation that, that came to Harvard and said, we're, we're, we're collecting students from around the world for a Mandarin debate. And they said, we, we want 
Harvard to go. And that is one of the three that was picked. And um, we had a great time. We, the, the debate was a very unusual one. I, I thought they, the debate was actually about um, should you marry someone that you, you love or, or someone that loves you, which, you know, a bit of an esoteric topic. And, you know, I, I'm not married. It's not one that, you know, even now that I would say I, to, I totally know, but it was fun. The, the whole debate was great. We got to pull in some game theory and, and say, well, you can't know the other person's preferences. You can only know your own. And so the optimization maximum was one. I played a character. It was, it was a great time and I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, you know, and I, I saw a lot of the countries near my heart. I, I, I haven't, you know, spent as much time or, or worked professionally in a way that I, I once imagined I would. But look, I, I think that the, the moment in time that I there was very special. It was, I think there was just this notion of, you could build anything you, you you wanted. I know there are places in the. It was very different than than Boston, where I went to college, where it basically was the same city it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago. It hadn't changed very much. Where in Beijing at the time, you go back and you might not be able to find your old apartment because they rerouted traffic, built an entire new section of town, and I thought that was incredible, and it, it, it left a deep impression on my view of the world. And I'm really happy I I, I did it and had the opportunity to go and spend time out there. Well, as I've mentioned offline, Eric, I, I did live in China and I met a lot of people, a lot of foreigners, non-Chinese people who learn Mandarin. And I was extremely impressed to see your level of, of fluency. So props to you, man. <laughs> it's, uh, well, well, look, I, I learned offline that, that you speak Russian and obviously Spanish, English, and a number of other languages. So nice of you to say, I find myself more impressed with, with the, the skills and expertise that you have, but um, look, I, I I felt really lucky to, to spend time out there. Amazing. Well, Eric, thank, thanks again for joining. Absolutely fascinating chat. I know the audience is going to be excited to listen, and you know, I, I look forward to more of these conversations. Thank you. It was it was a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this fun episode with Eric Gleiman. CEO of RAM. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Substack, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Austria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off, till next year, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.